All right. Well, hey, good morning. It's good to be with you, as always, worshiping Jesus together. My name is Tad Anderson. I am the uh, lead teaching pastor here at Mosaic Church, and uh, uh, by no means am I the only pastor at Mosaic Church. For that, I'm thankful we have uh, a couple other brothers who are elders here alongside me. Thankful for uh, Pastor Jason, who just gave the offering talk just now. Thank you, Jason, for that. And uh, hey, just uh, have a one, one really one big announcement before we get into the Word uh, this morning. And that is that uh, this afternoon we're having beach baptisms. So yeah, we're excited about that. Um, Jesus gave his church two ordinances to practice as we await his return, both incredibly important, though symbolic, uh, of a crucial aspect of the Christian faith. Baptism is one of those ordinances. Baptism is a time when um, born-again believers publicly profess their faith in Christ by being immersed under water and then quickly brought back up. We don't hold you down there. You quickly brought back up uh, as a picture of what has happened to them in a spiritual sense. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, but the Spirit working in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel made them alive in Christ. And so immersion under water is symbolic of their dying to sin with Christ who died uh, on the cross on their behalf. And as they are brought back up, this is symbolic of the new birth experience uh, where they are raised in an instant into newness of life to walk with Christ as a new creation. And so as you may know, uh, the command of Christ in the Great Commission is to make disciples and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is uh, why we say that as we baptize people, if you've noticed that. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not just like a kind of a, a fanciful uh, spiritual phrase that uh, we say due to tradition. Like, why do we say in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Well, because we just do. No, that's, that's not why. When someone is baptized, uh, they are professing an entirely new identity that has been given to them by God. We're baptized in the name of the Father because we have been given the right to become children of God. And our new identity is that of sons and daughters. We're baptized in the name of the Son because we have been given the role of disciples or those who learn from the perfect life of Jesus how we ourselves are to live and progressively implement all of his teachings uh, in our lives. And we're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is taking the mission of the church to the ends of the earth. And in our faith, we have become ambassadors of Christ, uh, as it says in 2 Corinthians, who join in on that mission, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit as the greatest singular focus of our lives, to see others come to saving faith in Christ as well by believing the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, okay? So, so baptism is a pretty big deal, right? It's a pretty big deal uh, to us as Jesus' church. It's a celebration that our brothers and sisters have gone from death to life, okay? The New Testament tells us that one, when, when one sinner repents, there is angelic rejoicing taking place in heaven. And so we want to rejoice, as the church, we want to rejoice over 
uh, things that are truly worth rejoicing over. And when it comes to baptism, uh, there's nothing more worthy of rejoicing. And this afternoon, we're going to see, based on those who have expressed a desire for baptism, eight-plus people who publicly profess their faith in Christ uh, today. So we're going to do these baptisms at the beach, specifically uh, at Henderson Beach State Park. We'll plan to all arrive there at 4 p.m. This is kind of the details of uh, how that's going to flow. Some leaders will get there early to secure a pavilion for us, and we'll uh, send a mass text out to everybody um, about which pavilion that'll be. And once we're all there, we'll head down to the beach. Uh, once the baptisms are complete, we'll probably let the kids play a few minutes because we'll have a team who's cooking hot dogs and, and hamburgers and uh, getting all that ready. And then we'll, uh, once all that's done, we'll head back up to the v- pavilion and we'll have a little uh, feast together. Uh, community groups are bringing all the sides and desserts. So if you're part of a community group, ask your uh, community group leader if you're not sure what you're supposed to be bringing. Or if you're not yet part of a community group but you want to join us, uh, just get with one of us if you want to bring something. If not, you don't have to. No worries. Just eat our food. We're happy for you to do that. All right. So it's, uh, it's $6 per vehicle to get into the park, uh, but it's worth it for the showers, bathrooms, picnic tables, and all that we'll get to use. If $6 is a problem, if, that's, if $6 is a hindrance to you, just let me know. We will cover that for you so you can join us tonight. Otherwise, uh, we'll see you there this afternoon. If you have any other questions, again, please get with me, get with uh, David, get with Jason, Tristan, jo- just anybody, anybody that you see. Just ask, and we'll, we'll answer your questions, all right? Okay, well, let's hop back into uh, Romans 8, the best chapter of the Bible. A major theme in Romans 8 Uh, is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So the first four weeks, including today, have been about the key role that the Holy Spirit plays in our salvation. Last week, Matt did a tremendous job on verses 5 through 8, elaborating not uh, how we get into step with the Spirit in a pragmatic sense, but rather what the new identity of a Spirit-filled person, a Christian, is that someone who is walking by the flesh is spiritually dead and as a result has a self-centered orientation to their life, okay? Whereas someone who is walking in the spirit has been given new life in Christ and has a new Godward orientation to their living where uh, their redeemed inclination is now to always be thinking about what would most glorify and please him. And that you're either in one of those orientations or the other. To say it as Matt did so plainly, I appreciated this, uh, you're either a Christian or you're not. There there is no in-between. That's a pretty serious reality, isn't it? It has eternal ramifications. So to me, it seems like anyone reading this seriously for the first time at that point would would be thinking, this whole being in Christ thing and not ever having to face condemnation or death for my sin sounds like what I want, right? So how do I get in on that? How do I make sure I'm in that for good? And so that's what Paul is going to tell us about today, how when it comes to Christ and the Holy Spirit, 
how to know for sure that you're in. Okay. Let's read our text. I'm, I'm going to start all the way back at verse 1, um, but our, our actual text today is verses 9 through 11. So let's just start at the beginning for context. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Man, there's a lot of good news in that, isn't there? Let's pray. Father, thank you, first and foremost, for Jesus and his gospel that has brought so many of the men and women into this room into a restored, reconciled, and redeemed relationship with you by the blood of his cross, by grace alone, through the faith alone that was birthed in us by your spirit. Lord, we are so excited and ready to rejoice this afternoon as we see the display of even more sons and daughters being brought to glory because you have shown light into darkness, just as you did at creation, into our hearts as you revealed who Jesus is to us as our Savior, Lord, God, and friend. We pray that that would be a blessed and edifying time to us and a glorifying time to you. And now, God, as we open back up to Romans 8, would you open our eyes and our hearts to behold the glorious truths that are there? We need the ongoing work of your spirit for that. And perhaps for some who have never fully grasped this gospel, would you help them to see it in all of its beauty today, that they too might place their hope in Christ for eternal life. And Lord, please be with me as I strive once again to do this incredible chapter of the Bible justice. Lord, who is sufficient for such a thing? Not I but I pray through Christ in me. Would you, as always, God, help me to say all that is needful to say, nothing that I do not need to say, and would you receive all the glory as love for you and joy in you 
increases here among these people. In Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm not a great typist. You know when you know, they taught everyone to type back in the day in school and in computer class, like where to put your fingers on the keyboard? I miss that day, I think. Um, <laughs> and so I type with my pointer fingers mainly, and uh, sometimes my thumb, like it's weird to watch, but it's not right. But that's how it, that's how it is now, okay? So anyway, uh, because of that, I make a lot of typos when I'm going quickly. Whenever I'm uh, teaching on the Holy Spirit, I'm sure to reach over as I'm writing my sermon, not quite far enough to hit the L key and to hit the K by mistake and type hokey spirit, which I always get a little chuckle out of because I'll never forget the Wednesday night I was invited to a friend's church in high school. We walked in with their family. It looked, it looked like what I thought a church should look like, uh, red carpet and wooden pews and whatnot, but you know, once the service started, I became very uncomfortable very quickly because it did not look like any church service I had ever attended. People were <laughs> running around and falling on the ground and speaking in a language I had never heard before with no one to translate. Come to find out, this was a very charismatic Pentecostal church, and all uh, of that stuff that they were doing, they attributed to the Holy Spirit. But to this day, as I've grown as a believer uh, and have read my Bible a good bit more since then, I'm not so sure it was the Holy Spirit they were filled with. I think it may have been the hokey spirit. (laughs) Hokey, if you look it up in the dictionary, means obviously contrived or phony. And honestly, I, I think it's hokey experiences like what I experienced in high school in this church that have given the Holy Spirit uh, a bad rap for some. Some people feel kind of weirded out by him, think he's like the mysterious member of the Trinity that shows up in in some churches but not in others. And and when he does, things get wild and, and out of control, but in a really strange kind of way. And so... um. If you don't have a lot of formative thinking about the Holy Spirit, I want something to solidify in your mind today when it comes to the Holy Spirit. He's not weird. He's not weird, and he's not into making people feel uncomfortable or uh, hokey or fake, but in fact, there's no one realer. He's the realist, if you will. First of all, in his realness, he's a real help. He's a real help. Listen to how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John's gospel. In John uh, 14, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In John 16, he goes on. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So uh, the Spirit of God is real, as real as the Father and the Son. He's not hokey. He's our helper. He's our helper. Jesus says he's such a great help to us that it's, 
It's better that we have him than even still having Jesus present on earth. That's hard to imagine, but that's what Jesus says. Because while having Jesus with us right now would be uh, awesome, Jesus in bodily form is constrained to one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit actually dwells inside of all of us all the time. So there is never a time when any of us are far from the powerful help of God in our lives. And really, all of the amazing things that the Spirit does fall into this category of help. Okay? This is his ministry, so to speak. He helps us by giving us each unique spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. He helps by uh, assisting us as we interpret the scriptures and in prayer, which we'll read about later in Romans 8. He helps us by convicting us of sin and by empowering our obedience and faith. But today, our text specifically says that the Holy Spirit helps us by verifying the realness of our salvation. Did you get that the first time? Let me read it to you again. Verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So I believe that our, our text this morning is kind of the, the gracious conclusion to the, the first discourse of Romans 8 that started all the way back in verse 1. See, Paul has uh, been really talking up this new life in the spirit and how incredible it is for those who really are Christians. And now he's saying... If you want to know for sure that there is no condemnation for you. And that when Jesus hung on the cross for sin, he hung on the cross for your sin. And that this new Godward mindset is the one that you have. Here's how you know. He says the way you can know for sure that you are in the spirit or in Christ, okay? He uses these interchangeably. Being in the Spirit is being in Christ, and vice versa, okay? The way you can know for sure that you are in the Spirit is if the Spirit is in you. Wait a minute. Did I say that right? The way you can know that you're in the Spirit, the Spirit's in you. Did I? That's like, is that circular reasoning? Does that seem? You're like, Dad, you're the one with the microphone. You're supposed to tell us. I'm just messing with you. I'm going to explain it. While, while it may seem like circular reasoning, it, it actually makes perfect sense when interpreted through uh, a few other things that Paul says, okay? And that's something I love about the Bible. If you read closely, it truly interprets itself. Something that may seem like a real head-scratcher in one place is often given great clarity in another place. You just have to be diligent to seek it out. Okay, And if you don't have a good study Bible, this is my shameless monthly plug for you to get one. We have some here for you to start with. Please tell me after service so I can get you one. All right, back on track. Uh, it actually makes perfect sense 
with what we've been reading all along, that the way to know if you are in the Spirit is if the Spirit is in you. Not only does that make sense, I think these verses are here to give us great encouragement by giving us assurance of salvation. Because this is a huge hurdle of faith for a lot of us, isn't it? Let's just see. I think this will be helpful. Who here has ever struggled with whether or not they're really a Christian? Like like you've had inner turmoil trying to figure out how to nail down whether or not your faith is genuine. Looking at your profession of faith and and the godly things you do on on one hand, but then being anxious about your continued uh, doubts and, and sin issues. On the other hand, trying to weigh them out, right? Raise your hand if that's something you've struggled with. It's okay. You can be, wow, okay. Unanimous. I have too. Full transparency, I have too. So first of all, if I had if that's something, since that's something you struggle with, let me just say, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We're told in Scripture, the devil. And he loves for you to think that you're all alone. Did you see all the hands? You are not alone. You are not alone. Satan is a liar who wants to confuse you and who wants you to feel defeated. But praise be to God. He has given us the truth in his word. Amen? Amen. Because God is not the author of confusion. He does not want us, God does not want us to feel afraid or uncertain when it comes to our salvation. In fact, the opposite is true. God desires that we would know how incredibly loved we are by him. And in turn, to have a confident and yet humble peace about us when it comes to our eternal security. This is why, this is part of the reason why God gave us his son, Jesus. You see, Satan loves to whisper accusations. He's the great accuser. He loves to whisper accusations to struggling saints. He'll say things like this. Maybe you've heard him say things like this. You see how you just messed up and sinned? You see how you just sinned again like that? That just goes to show you're not really a Christian. You'll never get it right. Listen, if Satan, brother or sister, if Satan ever tries to throw that mess in your face, here's what you can say. Shut up, loser. Shut up, loser. I may be a sinner, but that's exactly what qualifies me to receive the mercy and the grace of God. Jesus lived for me to make me righteous. Jesus died for me to pay my debt. And Jesus rose again to stomp your lousy head into the dirt so you can go to hell, literally. 
I'm serious. Now, let me be clear. Satan's the only one you're allowed to say that to. <laughs> Don't go telling your friends, my pastor says we can tell people to go to hell. No, I'm not saying that. Satan is the only one you can say that to because a lying loser, just look at the scriptures, is what he is. And hell is where he's going. And he wants you to think that you have to go there with him. He wants you to think you have to go there with him. But you don't. You do not. Jesus made sure of that. Jesus made sure of that. And Jesus made sure that you could be sure that you are now 100% safe in him. How did he do that? Good question. By giving you the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. (laughs) That's how he did it. So Paul says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So here's the first point in your notes. Assurance of salvation can be had not by scrutinizing what we do, but by looking to what God has done in and for us by the Spirit. You see, the most common trap for believers who wind up doubting their own salvation is that they are looking in the wrong place for confirmation. They're looking in the wrong place. They get obsessively caught up looking at themselves. And as I've already alluded to, they they get out their spiritual balance, right? Start putting all their known sins on one side and all their good deeds on the other side to see if it's enough to, to tip the scale in their minds. They have, uh, they have some self-fabricated idea of how far along someone like them should be by now. Sound familiar? The problem with this is, well, to be frank, the problem with this is the gospel. You see, let me remind you, you were not saved initially by your own works. And so if you decide that you're going to check in on the status of your salvation, like your retirement account, you know, you're going to like check in, see how it's doing over there, you know, and uh, by, by weighing your own works, I hate to break it to you, but they're still going to come up too short for you to merit salvation. You can't do enough. Or if you decide to check in on the state of your sin, hopefully that's going down, right? Again, you'll find that regardless of your growth and spiritual discipline, unfortunately, you're still a sinner who sins. Thankfully, this problem is easily fixed. By taking our eyes off of ourselves and turning them toward Christ. Because when you look to Christ, what you'll find is that his grace is still sufficient for you. Just as it was on the day that you first believed. It hasn't changed. You'll find that while your righteousness is still woefully inadequate, his is still perfect. And while you're still a sinner, he's still a friend of sinners who came into the world to save sinners by laying his life down for them on the cross. 
Now, if you're, if you're starting to feel encouraged, and I hope you are, it's okay, that's just a baby, we all have them, right, most of us, so it's all right. Hopefully you're starting to feel encouraged, but maybe you're, you're not sure what all of this has to do with figuring out if the Spirit is in you. Don't zone out. I'm about to connect the dots here, okay? In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes a really helpful, clarifying statement. Listen to what he says. He says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Bingo. (laughs) There's a light bulb. How can we be assured that we are in the Spirit and thus that the Spirit is in us? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that if you genuinely and confidently profess that Jesus is your Lord, then that is the indicator that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. There it is. Let's finish up. No, just kidding. Okay, there's more. (laughs) And so to make that even more clear, I've broken it down. I've broken down lordship in your notes uh, like this. So uh, how to know the Spirit is in you? Well, repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. Two things, repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. This is what it looks like when Jesus is the Lord of your life. Number one, you have repented of your sin by acknowledging that you were spiritually blind and helplessly caught in a self-centered way of living that did not acknowledge or honor God as God. And so you have now rejected that old, lost, dead way of living. And number two, you have now done a spiritual 180 by placing all of your trust in Jesus because you believe that as a son of God, he's the only one who can save you by making atonement with his blood that he shed on the cross for your sin and that as the son of God, he has proven his ultimate authority by not just laying his life down, but by taking it up again. And so you have committed to following him, striving to submit to and observe all that he has taught for the rest of your life. Repentance of sin and faith in Jesus. This is lordship. If these two things are true about you, they affirm that Jesus is Lord for you. Okay? And so there's there's only one way that happens. Okay, Paul says, there's only one way that happens. In the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. Which our text today clarifies. That means the reason you're now in the Spirit is because the Spirit of God is in you. Okay, And so I say, assurance of salvation can be had not by scrutinizing what we do, but by looking to what God has done in and for us by the Spirit. The absolute most important thing that God has done in us is that he has lovingly and graciously poured out his spirit into our hearts so that we might be saved by repentance and faith in Jesus. So I I hope, I sincerely hope, that anyone who might be struggling or who struggles on and off 
with assurance of their salvation would be strengthened by the reality of verse 9 today. That we are indeed safe in the Spirit, if the Spirit is in us. And that this is one of the primary reasons we've been, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. As it says really clearly in Ephesians 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Or as I said earlier, the Holy Spirit is helping us by verifying the realness of our salvation until Christ returns and brings it to completion. Now, before we move on to finish our text, I also want to briefly address anyone who does not wrestle with knowing if they are in the Spirit. Because the reason they don't struggle is they haven't ever trusted Jesus and received the indwelling Holy Spirit. Like, there's no question in your mind. You're not a Christian. But maybe today you're interested because the gospel sounds good in a way today that it hasn't before. Peace with God and freedom from condemnation from all your sin sounds good. Having a Savior and Lord and friend in Jesus sounds good. No fear of death and the promise of eternal life sounds good. If all of that sounds good, I just want you to know. All of that and more can be yours today, and it couldn't be easier. Jesus tells us how, right in Luke's gospel, chapter 11. Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you... <clears throat> If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God is a perfect father. God is a perfect father. And if you've run away from him in fear or in rebellion until now, Jesus says he's patiently waiting for your return. Just like you love to be able to give your kids all the good things that they need in life, God loves that too. And he has the very best and most important thing of all to give anyone who wants to be his son or daughter, his Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if you want in, like you want in to God's family and to salvation and to the spirit, here's the way. You ready? Just ask. <laughs> Just ask. There's no need to explain where you've been. He already knows. But that doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is that his son or daughter was lost, and now they're found. You're home. And he can give you all that you need in Christ by the Spirit. Just ask, and it's all yours.
And not only is it all yours, but the rest of verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I think it's crucial that we see the importance of that word belong, because if not having the Spirit means that we do not belong to God, then having the Spirit would mean the opposite, that we do belong to God. One of the deepest things that the human soul is wired to long for is a true sense of belonging. All humanity is looking for that. And in the Spirit, we not only can have assurance of our salvation, but we can finally belong where we were always meant to belong, in the family of God. You see, those who God makes alive in Christ, he also makes his own forever. What a tremendous comfort that is. In John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of the church, his disciples in this way. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So, do you want salvation today? Do you want freedom from condemnation today? Do you want eternal life today? Do you want to finally be a part of God's family where you can finally belong Just ask, and it's all yours today. Just ask. All right, so that's our first verse. Um, There's two more. Uh, Let's read that. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We will uh, move significantly quicker through the second and third verses of our passage because uh, we've already built a good foundation, okay? I'm I'm not just going quick, but uh, we've already established that while we are no longer in the flesh as Christians, unfortunately, we still must bear with the bedeviling presence of the flesh, Uh, that old man, and it's opposition to the redemptive work of the Spirit who has taken uh, authoritative charge of us, as it were. So uh, I like the way another translation words it. It says, even though the body is as good as dead because of the effects of sin, the Spirit is infusing you. I love that. The Spirit is infusing you with life now that you are right with God. If the spirit of the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, then you can be sure that he who raised him will cast the light of life into your mortal bodies through the life-giving power of the the spirit residing in you. That's a really great way to say it. So even though we're stuck for now in these beat-up, sin-weathered bodies because 
of the righteousness of Christ that has been powerfully injected into our bloodstream, so to speak, our hearts begin to now beat to the tune of Christ and the gospel. Okay. 2 Corinthians 4 says it this way, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And here's the result. Our new life in the spirit becomes observable by its fruit in the present and will be perfected in our future resurrection. Okay. Let's talk about present fruit and we'll wrap up with future resurrection. Okay. Regarding present fruit, Galatians 5 is helpful. It says, uh, the works of the flesh are evident. It goes on to describe all manner of sin. We'll talk about that later. Uh, it says in verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong, there's that word again, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, some of you may be thinking, Tad, didn't you just tell us earlier that we don't need to be looking at ourselves for assurance of salvation? Now, uh, now you're, you're, you're detailing all these practical things that define us or that should define us as spirit-filled believers. To that, I would say, fair. But let me clarify. Uh, just because we don't look at ourselves for assurance of salvation does not mean that when our salvation is genuine, we won't be showing evidence of it. You see that? Let me say it again. Just because we don't look to ourselves for assurance of salvation does not mean that when salvation is genuine, we won't be showing evidence of it. I know this may seem like potato tomato, or sorry, potato potato to some, <laughs> but it is potato tomato. It's different. We need to split the hairs here doctrinally. We need to understand the difference here. The assurance of our salvation comes from what Christ has done on our behalf. Because to put our hope in our own behavior is called works-based righteousness, and there's no life in that. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God, because by knowledge of the law comes knowledge of sin, right? We know that. That said, if we are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us, there is no way for us to not begin to bear the fruit of his presence in our lives. He can't be in there and not be doing something, okay? That doesn't work like that. And remember, we're talking about the Holy Spirit, not the hokey spirit. So we're, we're not attempting to contrive or fake the attributes of Galatians 5. For those who have tried uh, faking it till you make it, it doesn't work for long, does it? Just let somebody cut you off in traffic or let your kids, you know, uh, knock their red Kool-Aid off onto your carpet or something. And out the window goes uh, those fake fruits. I love how uh, Pastor Paul Tripp articulates this. He says, only a living tree, only a living apple tree, sorry, can produce fresh apples. If you go to the store to buy a bag of apples and a nail gun, you might be able to have apples on your tree uh, for a day or so. But they'll soon be, begin to rot and fall away. But the way it works is for those who are truly in the Spirit, our hearts simply begin to be 
the soil where the fruit of Christ's likeness grows after we're born again. So where there was once indifference toward God, now there's a deep and profound love for God. Where there was a lack of contentment, now there's a surpassing joy because of the gospel. Where there was once anxiety and fear, now there's a supernatural patience and the inclination to wait on the Lord. Where there used to be a a low-grade bitterness and, and resentment always boiling under the surface, now there's kindness. Where there was once a lack of concern for character, there's now a desire for goodness and faithfulness, even when no one else is watching. Where there once was a propensity to be short-tempered and and harsh toward others, now there's a newfound gentleness and a spirit of grace. And where there once was no discipline, now there's self-control and an increasing desire to live an upright life for the glory of God. All that is just there now, right? Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self has begun to be renewed day by day. So while it's not the fruit we're looking to for assurance of our salvation, anyone who has truly been saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will have the evidence of the Spirit's fruit in their lives. Not perfection. Hear me. Not perfection, but undeniable fruit. John MacArthur, pastor and author John MacArthur, says it this way, Plainly, the Spirit indwells the believer, kindling righteous desires and holy affections, pouring out the love of God in our hearts. The believer, thus, loves Christ and strives to obey Him. So that's the present fruit we begin to see as the result of having new life in the Spirit. And the final indication of our text that our our, our life in the Spirit uh, is there, that it's, it's working, right, is that it's going to be perfected in our future resurrection. The text says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so in a church of mostly young, healthy bodies, we may tend to skip over this final aspect of the good news. But before long, we will all become familiar with deterioration, decay, and death. If Christ tarries, then the older we get, death will go from being a concept to being a reality. Some of us have already begun to taste the reality in the loss of our loved ones or inexplicable illness and things like this. But the good news is that for all who are in Christ, Though we die, yet shall we live. While our bodies may shrivel up and die and get buried in the ground, there is coming a time where just as Christ was resurrected into a new glorious body, we too will be raised and changed in an instant when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 4 says it this way, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who have passed away that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Mm. I think sometimes we all have a tendency to suffer from eternal amnesia and the gospel that we believe, it winds up only having two parts instead of three. We're grateful. Christ lived for us, and he made us righteous. We're amazed that Christ died for us and took away our punishment. But we stumble when we get to the point of the resurrection. It's important, we know, but how it implies, we forget. We forget how it applies. It's the resurrection of Christ that is our hope of eternity with God. In Christ's resurrection and ascension, he sent us his Holy Spirit. So, get this, the same Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just so, like, your fuse is just, like, can't compute, okay? Like, I don't know. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us. This is amazing. I, I don't know when you're going to die. How you're going to die, how I'm going to die. But it's highly likely that we will. Maybe, maybe at 99 years old, like we all think it'll be, you know, at home, asleep, surrounded by friends and family. Maybe at 45 in a car accident. Maybe in a hospital bed with cancer at 68. Or any number of ways, I don't know. But here's what I do know. If you are in Christ and the Spirit dwells in you, death will not be the tragic end of your life. Death will not be the tragic end of your life. It will be the momentary intermission before you come bursting out of the grave, ready for eternal life. In your same body, only, with an unimaginable state of glory to it, to meet Christ face to face on his way to make a new heaven and a new earth with no more pain and no more tears and no more sin and only the incredible peace and joy and fun and excitement of knowing God forever. We can't forget this part. Paul says, we are going to experience an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <laughs> if you've ever seen the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you may know. It was originally a book by Christian author C.S. Lewis, and so much of it is meant to be gospel imagery. If you haven't read it or seen it, you should go home and watch Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe or on Netflix or whatever before baptisms. But in the final scene, I love it so much. Aslan, the Christ figure, has helped the main characters, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who are brothers and sisters, to defeat the evil white witch. And they become new, redeemed royalty. 
in the land of Narnia. And they're on horseback, riding through the forests together. Only they're not children anymore. They're grown. And they're wearing their royal crowns and robes and just having a joyous time together. Sorry. But Edmund stops for a moment because his eye is caught by something. It's the old lamppost. That was the first thing they had seen as they came through the magic wardrobe so many years ago. It's all overgrown and covered in vines. And as they're all looking at it, bewildered, Peter says, what is it? It seems familiar. And Susan says, it's like from a dream or a dream of a dream. And then Lucy starts to remember where they had come from and the old house and the English countryside as children. And the wardrobe was in the spare room. But their new life in Narnia was so amazing that their old life had just become so distant in their minds. And all they can get out is spare um. They don't, even, they don't even remember. They're trying to put words to their old life. This is the hope of the bodily resurrection. Our sin-marred lives in this old, dilapidated world will become so distant. We'll have a hard time even remembering what the specific forms of brokenness even were before the Spirit raised us with Christ and ushered us into the glory of the new heaven and the new earth with eternal life forever. So, if in fact the Spirit dwells in you, rejoice because you are in the Spirit. The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And one day when Christ returns, he will raise you too and give life to your mortal body through his Spirit who dwells in you. And if the Spirit doesn't yet dwell in you, but you'd like to get in on all that, Just ask. Just ask. And all of the riches of God's grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ can be yours today. Just ask. Let's pray. Father, you are so incredibly good. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. May we not forget the importance of the resurrection. It's by the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and his going away to sit at your right hand that we now have been sent the incredible gift of your spirit to dwell in us, who does many things to help us. But as we saw in our text this morning, who helps us to sense the realness of our salvation. 
Father, I, my prayer is just that we would rejoice in this reality and that today our rejoicing would climax as we see our new brothers and sisters in Christ symbolically go from death to life and be indwelled by the Spirit. And Father, if there's anyone in here who has been standing far off from you, not sure if they can be sure that they can really be a Christian, I pray, God, that in humility and in brokenness over their sin and in joy over the gospel, that they would just ask their Heavenly Father for the gift of the Spirit and that you would give it to them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.